I really look forward to that Trump sounding. What a gas. <laughs> That's just something wonderful to look forward to. Great motivation. Just uh, those promises uh, mean everything, don't they? They're really great. Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, this text has been read for us, 15 through 29. I've always thought this was a challenging text to teach or preach because as you look at it, you just simply think, well, don't we all know that? Jesus is equal with God. Uh, That should be simple. Let's go on to the next point. But obviously, what we might think or see on the surface is not uh, everything that should be seen uh, within a text, especially something that John has written for us. So there's a number of things that we want to Uh, We want to try to enjoy from this and learn from this. The first question I would ask to set this up is, do you think that most people look at God and Jesus as someone completely different than each other? I think I see that. I think I've seen that in myself. Well, there's God, and then there's Jesus. And Jesus is not, I mean... God is God, but then there's Jesus. And we sometimes do not equate them as equally or as equal as God places them and as it's taught us in the Bible. John began this whole treatise by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he intentionally uses that introduction to jostle our minds and make us think of Genesis 1. You can't help but read that and think, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then John just starts the same way and plugs in Jesus as the Word, who is the one who created everything. That's still, as maybe it was child upbringing or whatever, but it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that the same one who spoke the universe into existence is the same one that left heaven, came to the earth, uh, came into flesh, lived on the earth, taught and did all the things that he did, and then uh, died for our sins and went back to heaven. That's just very, very difficult. I think as difficult as it is to think of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and think of them as God. And I thought there was one God, but it sounds like there's three, but there's not. There's just one, and I'm confused. So we, we do those things, don't we? we? We struggle with some of those concepts. So Jesus in this particular text is challenging the Jews in that regard. You might think it interesting to maybe know that when, and many of you have heard me talk about this a little bit, but in Genesis 1 verse 1, uh, Moses begins that with, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then later in verse 26, he says, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And suddenly we're, we're bombarded with this idea of, wait a minute, who's the us around here? 
And even if you were reading this, if you were listening to this in the Hebrew, you would read, uh, when you read God, you would read the word Elohim and not just El, which would be the, the singular. You're reading a word that is a collective noun. And then it's even proven to us in English when he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And the Jewish rabbis in teaching on that would actually say it was that the Elohim referred to the Father and angels. And then when it says, let us make man, it was the Father and angels. They have no concept of the Messiah being in the midst of that and Jesus therefore being God, which gives you some reason, an obviously strong reason, as to why John would spend some time here on Jesus being equal with God and why he would even start this treatise that way. Keep in mind he is doing this so that those who are reading this might believe, John chapter 20, or even reading in the Greek it could it can be translated either way or both ways that they might continue to to believe. So this is a strong motivation to to center and give a good foundation to our belief system, and, and we need to keep that in mind. So let's remember the scene, just before we get into the text, let's remember the scene. Jesus has just healed one man out of a giant convalescent home <laughs> that has been spat, scattered around the pool uh, at, at Bethsaida, uh, Bethesda, excuse me, not Bethsaida, Bethesda, and, uh, and this, this, all these sick ones, and, and the oddest thing ever is him just walking in, seeing all these sick people, and anonymously just walking up, and I almost just picture him walking over and sitting down next to the guy as he's laying on the ground and cannot move, and saying, hey, would you like to be healed? <laughs> it's so funny. Just, you want to see the video on it, don't you? You know, it's just that one thing, yeah, you, you, you want to be healed? Well, yeah, but nobody will get me down to the water when it's stirred up. And he says, just stand up and walk, take your bed, and go home. And the man just, boom. And he walks out, and Jesus just disappears. And nobody knows him. The guy doesn't even know who he is. Uh, so when it happens that he finally founds out, finds out, and Jesus meets him in the temple and says, be thankful what you get, and don't go and sin anymore, he runs and tells the Pharisees and the leaders who've been t asking who this is, and he says, it's Jesus. He's the one who healed me. And that's where you pick up then in verse 15 of John 5, him saying that. And verse 16 says, and this is why the Jews are persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now that is a uh, right off, that's just a, a crazy statement. And, and we look at that too, too simply and just go, yeah, they're mad because he's doing that on the Sabbath. But think about what should have happened. Why aren't they blown away by what he just did? <laughs> Why are you thinking of just this little, uh, this little rule that you guys have, have basically made up? And that's all you can think about. And if a fella could heal a man who had been uh, uh, an invalid for 38 years, would you not have stepped back and think, you know, we need to reevaluate how we look at the Sabbath. <laughs> it seemed to be a natural way to go about this. But this triggers then this idea of, of Jesus then having to answer them or wanting to answer them. As you see in verse 17, 
And by the way, uh, look at verse 17, but Jesus answered them. Look at verse 19, if you were reading any version besides the ESV, uh, or most versions besides the ESV, it would also say, so Jesus answered them. ESV just says said, same word though, he's answered them. There's two different times that he gives an answer within the text. Now his, that's what leads then to, to what's going on. Look carefully at verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things. I want to highlight that word, doing. So John makes sure that we understand that this isn't really an isolated incident. He's doing these things. Yeah, we, we've, we've kind of made that observation when we study other gospel accounts, don't we? We, we look at this and go, well, he's always healing on the Sabbath. He just always seems to choose the Sabbath. Well, John confirms that for us. Sabbath was the healing day of choice, it seems, by Jesus. Not that that's obviously the only time he did it. But he loves to do it on that day when he's trying to teach a lesson. And, and that lesson keeps coming out. So this is a regular part of his life and what he's doing. Now, Let's stop and notice something. We talked about how this was a sign a couple of weeks ago, and obviously it was, but it's not just the healing itself that is a sign. The fact that it's done on the Sabbath is also a sign. We talked about that. It gives the idea of symbolism of deliverance. But now I want to take you to the next level. There's something else going on here then as well. To do this on the Sabbath and do this in order to bring people into God's eternal Sabbath required healing, not simply physical healing. The same words that we all read in Isaiah 53, everybody knows Isaiah 53. Yes, because that's the suffering servant song, right? That's the one. If anybody knows anything about Isaiah, they're going to think about Isaiah 53. We read it for the Lord's Supper. Well, right in there in verse 4, verse 3 and 4, he talks about he carried our sorrows and, uh, and by his stripes we were healed. And Matthew quotes that in Matthew 8 and verse, uh, verse 16 or so and says that that prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus healed people. I, I think Matthew messed up. You know, he, he misquoted. He, he didn't understand Isaiah very well. You know, Isaiah is obviously talking about sins. He, he died for our sins. He didn't die so that, you know, he, Jesus could fulfill it by putting his hand on somebody and healing them. You know, that doesn't make sense. No, it made perfect sense to Matthew. Because the healing of the flesh was only an outward picture of him healing us in a way and recreating us. That's what I was talking about this morning in our lesson. He's recreating us to make us prepared for the great Sabbath rest in which we will enter. Let me give you a couple of texts that will help you with that. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 15 uh, notice what he says here to, to the Corinthians. He says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Let, let's just stop right there. 
this is a very difficult text to follow sometimes because we have a hard time figuring out what was going on when the Jews had their eyes, their, <laughs> they had a veil over their hearts and couldn't see. Remember back when Moses veiled his face. Most I'm sure of you know that. He came down from the mountain, his face is glowing, and he would go, now remember, he would go and he would talk to them while unveiled. <laughs> Glory of God emanating, reflecting from his face. And then when he got done with that, he would veil his face and walk around the rest of the day, etc., until he was going to get another revelation. And then he would unveil and tell them. The whole purpose was, and this is what Paul's doing here, is trying to get the Jews to see. It's not simply the commandments I'm giving you that is important. I want you to see my glory so that you learn that your, your purpose is to see me and become like me. The Spirit is the Lord in that the Holy Spirit's work in revealing the Word is the Lord's work in revealing Himself to change us and make us according to His glory. We can also, and that's what he was warning the Corinthians about, we can also live veiled lives, our hearts being veiled, as we read the Word. That would happen if we're only reading to figure out the right and the wrong instead of reading to see God. We've mentioned that a lot of times, so it's just a reminder. Uh, reminders are important <laughs> that when we're reading, we're trying to see the glory of God so that we can reflect that glory. And that's what he says in the rest of the text. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So your life and my life should be a process of transformation. Maybe there is a, 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 a problem sometime with our growth graph. Like if you graphed your growth, growth, uh, growth would, it, would it look like a, uh, a stock that was going up? <laughs> Or would it look like a, um, a recession? <laughs> Which, what would it look like? The stock needs to be going up. Our reflection of him needs to get higher and higher, not leveling out. And that's easy to do, as any Christian would, would, uh, would say. Now, if you go down in 2 Corinthians just a little further, he gives an explanation to this transformation process. And I'll, then I'll show you how this fits with what we're doing in John. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5 have that up here too, I believe. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, uh, typographical there, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See that new creation? You see, the same one who finished 
His physical creation, heavens and earth creation, is now still working, finishing up a new creation. If he's going to bring us into a new heavens and new earth, he has to recreate us to fit into that spiritual realm and to fit in his relationship with us. So we are in this recreation process. And that is how he refers to the deliverance and purpose of the word to see God's glory be recreated than to be like him. So the healing on the Sabbath has that picture. Not just Sabbath, not just deliverance, but a whole recreation of who we are. We testify to that when we are baptized and raise up to walk in newness of life. There is a newness for the new heavens and new earth. We are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. And we need to understand what he's doing here. So John just keeps showing these little pictures that he expects them to give. Now, there's two reasons, simply, of course, that Jesus, they want to kill Jesus. One, he's healing on the Sabbath. We notice that. The second is the answer he gives to them as to why he's healing on the Sabbath and why it's not a violation of the Sabbath command. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. That's very interesting reply because the gospel accounts in similar situations when he heals on the Sabbath, he goes into all these arguments from the Old Testament as why it was lawful to, to heal on the Sabbath. Did you notice he doesn't go into that here? He just says, oh, uh, my father's been working all the time. He never rested like you think. He's still working. And by the way, so am I. Now see, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit of what, what they're thinking there because their idea was that God was always, they, they believed God continued to work because God had to continue to care for the universe. They knew he was the creator of the universe and so God would continue to work. But what they wouldn't have thought was that Jesus turns around and says, I'm working in the same way God is. Because what did that do? Wait a minute. <laughs> you're saying you're working still because God works, and so you're working, so you're just saying that you work too. Exactly. In the same way God is working, I'm working. Hebrews chapter 1, it should be verse 4. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, uh, the Hebrew writer proclaims that Jesus upholds everything by the word of his power. How comforting that is. Especially when the world around us tells us our world is going to suddenly self-destruct and burn up or who knows what they come up with next. Uh, I remember in 1971 or two that the uh, New York Times came out with the new ice age, how we're all going to freeze to death. Well, now we're all going to boil. They don't know anything. God, Jesus, upholds everything by the word of his power. Calm down, relax, it's okay. Buy a car that uses fossil fuel. It's all right. I'm sorry, I had to throw that in just for funny. Okay. Uh, at any rate, uh, you see then Jesus using this. So it, when you put that in those terms, what, it, what, what would the Jews think? This is hard for them. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help you see that this would be difficult for them to understand. This is a this is really bold that Jesus does in challenging them. 
And if you or I were standing there, or he, you know, we just see a mere man who's 32 years old or something making these kinds of statements, you know full well we would go, what? <laughs> this, this, is, this is just absolutely shocking. Well, why would he challenge them that way? I would be surprised if he would have challenged some Gentiles that way who didn't know anything about the Bible, but why would he challenge them that way? Because the prophets repeatedly told them God's coming back. The Lord's going to return. How many times did the, the, the gospel accounts give us this quote up here? That, like Isaiah said, prepare the way of the Lord. Who's coming? The Lord is coming. Remember the significance of that in Isaiah? In Isaiah, the Lord had left. The Lord was done with him. In Ezekiel, there was a great picture of the vision of the temple, tabernacle, of the uh, throne of the Lord leaving Jerusalem so that they're destroyed. But then the prophecy, the Lord's going to come back. And when he returns, he'll reign again. In fact, the idea of the word gospel is our God reigns. Isaiah 52, verse 7, our God reigns. The fact that he's in control again is, is what's important. And he's saying, this was prophesied, Malachi. Look what, look what Malachi says in chapter 3. This is just 400 years before that time. Behold, I'm sending my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. There's John the Baptist. And then, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. God was going to come. He was going to return. The Lord whom you are saying, why doesn't he come? Why doesn't he come? Boom, he's going to come, and he's going to purify you. Well, what happens when purified by fire? That which is truly not metal is going to be burned up. And this was a great warning then. These kinds of prophecies they would have known and understood. So imagine then again what it would be like for the Jews to be challenged with Jesus being the equality of God. Here's the first thing they're going to think about. I thought there was just one God. It would be a natural thing to think about. Sure, wait, wait a minute. They're just one God. And are you trying to challenge the Father's Godship, if you will? Are you trying to say you're another God? Are you trying to say that you are in com competition with the Father? Those would be legitimate questions. And this is the reason that Jesus' answer here is so important. Look how he answers this. In, in verse 19 here, he clarifies and shows that he's not some other God. Truly, I truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. What he is doing here is he is picturing his work like, like he would have been an apprentice to his Father as a carpenter. And he is going to watch what his father does, and he's going to do what his father does, and he is going to become what a true good carpenter would do by being in the position of an apprentice with his father. 
So that's the picture he's giving, even though, of course, Jesus does not need to learn something from God. It is not the same kind of picture. But it's still that father-son. I watch what he does. We're not in competition. We work together. I do whatever he says. I do whatever I see him doing. I do exactly what he does. Of course, that's a pretty strong claim in itself, isn't it? Who else could say, I see what the Father does, I do what the Father does. <laughs> you, know, there, you, you just couldn't ex exactly say those kinds of words. So the idea is that Jesus is not simply sent from God. Remember, that's what Nicodemus said. We know that you've been sent from God. No, he's not sent from God. He's not another Elijah. He's not just simply someone who came and is doing some miracles. He is emphasizing he is God. Now, what there is here are there four statements in verses 19 to 22 that begin with the word for. Please look at them. Verse 19, middle of the verse. For, and he's keying off his equality with God. For, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Verse 20. For, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Verse 21. For as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So four times he starts those sentences with four. The Son does whatever the Father is doing. 20. The Father shows the Son all that He's doing. 21, the son does what he sees the father doing. And then finally, the pinnacle one, the father has given all judgment to the son. Now, in any of those things, you have a number of shocking, shocking statements. In 2 Kings 5, 7, you might remember when Naaman the leper uh, heard about a prophet in Israel could heal him. And he went to the king of Israel and he said to the king of Israel, I'm here to have you heal me of leprosy. And the king tore his clothes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Indeed, every Jew would have understood. There's only one person that can give life. There's only one person that can judge. There's only one person that can do that in an eternal kind of way, and it's God, and Jesus just claimed that very thing. Notice even the fact the Father has given all judgment to the Son. In Genesis 18.25, Abraham referred to God as the judge of all the earth. And so we see again Jesus claiming that he now is the judge of all the earth. He is God. Okay, that sets up the critical part of the text. The hearing of the word of the Son. Now, verse 21. The critical statement here, he gives life to whom he will. We need to come to grips with that. Jesus gives life to whom he will. When he walked into that group of invalid people at, uh, at that pool, he chose one person. It was his choice. He chose one person to heal as his choice. Can't argue with it. Don't know all the reasons. Don't have to know. 
He chose one person. He does the same thing. He chooses whom he will to give life. And he's going to go ahead and explain who he chooses. Fortunately, he's going to choose. He's going to tell us who he chooses. But he gives life to whom he will. It is his point. Now, from the Jewish standpoint and from our standpoint, what does this claim tell us? He eliminates any possibility of salvation without him. There is no possibility of salvation without Jesus. We have an absolute world of people who claim to believe in God, but do not believe that Jesus is necessary for salvation. I'm shocked by the number of pastors in churches who will deny that Jesus is the only way to salvation. One of the things that you'll see a lot of if you do much research on uh, the uh, how we got the Bible. One of the very common things, so common that I, that I read again numerous, even evangelical conservatives saying, well, you know, it wasn't until almost, uh, the, it was not until the fourth century that uh, the church decided what was supposed to be in the Bible. And there was this big battle on whether the Gospel John should be in or whether the Gospel of Thomas should be in. And the Gospel of John won out. And the Gospel of Thomas didn't win out. And since the Gospel of Thomas didn't win out, that's where we would have learned that you could be saved in many different ways and Jesus is not necessary. Now there isn't one thing I said there that has any truth to it whatsoever. And yet it has been taught, I mean, it, it's in books, evidences books, all how we got the Bible books, just make you barf <laughs> to see it. And the little thing that no one ever says is, we have the actual writings of a guy named Clement who lived before the first century came to an end, and he lists the New Testament books that all Christians had already accepted. Come on. We didn't need somebody 400, 300 years later or a council to come together and say this is the decision. The council did come together. Not a biblical council, but in 325 the council did come together and agreed that what was always considered the New Testament was the New Testament. That's all they did. There was no big, oh wow, we ought to check out the Gnostic Gospels and and watch the movie The Da Vinci Code before we do anything else. Uh, that's where things get a little messed up. But here's this critical thing again. You can't be saved without Jesus. And this is, this is important for us. And we start saying crazy things like, well, you know, they're a really good person, and, and they really love God, and, and, you know, they do believe in Jesus. Yeah, they don't do what He says, but... There's no but here. There's no however here. There's no changing this. And it isn't a matter of us standing in the presence of, and standing instead of God and trying to be the judge. It's a matter of listening to what he has to say and believing it. Peter said in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is salvation in no other name known among heaven 
except the name Jesus Christ. There is no salvation in any other way. One, and here's where I'm trying to help you be careful and be prepared to talk to somebody about this. Somebody says you can be saved without Jesus, then the answer should be, dumb Jesus for going to a cross if we can do it another way. I mean, are you kidding me? Jesus like, yeah, I'm going to go down and go to the cross and die for their sins, but actually all they have to do is just live kind of a good life and they'll be saved anyway. Then why are you going? Just send a message. The gospel is live a good life. Here's some guidelines. No, nobody lives that good. And so it's a critical, critical message that we need to get here. Notice also the contrast now between verse 25 and verse 28. 25, truly I truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. Notice that is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now now look here at, at what he's saying. The hour is coming and now is. He's not talking about something in the future. Now is. That those who hear the voice of the Son of God, what are they going to have? What's going to happen? They are going to be dead and they're going to come to life. Now we're talking immediately about life from the dead in a spiritual way. You're not talking about a dead body coming to life. You're talking about a dead person spiritually coming to life. Remember the Valley of Dry Bones? Maybe you uh, haven't read it, Ezekiel 40, uh, 37, or maybe you learned about it in Bible class and all the bones come together and flesh comes on it. God breathes life into it. It's a picture of God creating his new nation, bringing them to life. Daniel talks about it in Daniel 12. But now notice the contrast to that and verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Now notice on this one, he doesn't say a now is. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth or come out. Those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. The first resurrection is a voluntary choice. Everyone, verse 25, who hears the voice of the Son of God, those who hear will live. That's a voluntary choice. You and I can make that choice today, and we need to make that choice today and forever and the rest of our lives. We're going to hear the voice of the Son of God. And if we do, He chooses to give us life. It's His choice, remember, to whom He will, and here's whom He will, those who listen to Him. But then the second one is an involuntary choice. This one is completely Jesus' choice. The day is going to come, the hour is going to come when everyone in the tombs are going to hear his voice and come forth. But this time, they're going to come forth either to a resurrection of life or a resurrection of condemnation. All of that is Jesus' choice and is dependent on whether you took the first choice voluntarily and heard the the voice of the Son of God. So in that again, here's a clear message of Jesus being the judge. Do you notice those words in verse 27? Because he's the son of man. That could only be Daniel 7, 13, and 14. 
one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven and coming to the Ancient of Days, and there was given him a kingdom and judgment and power and all of this, and he then becomes the judge of all the earth. That is the critical picture. Now, here's our concluding, concluding lesson here. How does this fit John's purpose in causing his leaders to continue in belief? Now, just imagine this. Uh, I'm having a conversation with somebody who does not believe in Jesus to be the Son of God. And so what I do is, is I read this text to them. And I say, see, Jesus said he's equal with God. Jesus is the judge. Jesus has given everything God has given. Jesus is obviously God, and if you hear his voice, you will come to life. And if not, one day you will hear his voice, and you'll come forth to a, a resurrection of judgment if you didn't hear his voice. And what that person's going to do is they're going to go, oh man, why didn't you say so in the first place? I guess Jesus is God. I think I'll obey him. Is that what's going to happen? No. No, they're going to go, why should I believe Jesus saying he's God? There's all kinds of kooks out there that say crazy things. So how does this help? How does this help somebody believe, as John said, I'm writing this this way? Here's how it helps. What Jesus did is made an outrageous claim. And the claim itself demands a response. He made an outrageous claim. He said, I'm God. So as C.S. Lewis has well said, and it's been said many, many times in many different books, that leaves three choices. He is a liar. That'd be one choice. Jesus is a liar. If he's a liar, then you have to ask some other questions. What was his motivation in lying? Oh, goody, goody, somebody will kill me. <laughs> somebody will put me on a cross. Oh, that'll be wonderful. Does he get any benefit from the lie? Is there some way that this would happen? Plus, here is this liar who just did a miracle that the very enemies he has admit was a miracle. That's one of the crazy things that you keep seeing in the gospel. You don't have, Jesus does a miracle and everybody goes, I don't know if that was a miracle. <laughs> well, no, let me think about that. Was that really a miracle? That guy, you know, was dead for uh, four days and he came back to life. Was that really a miracle? Nobody's doing that. They're going, yeah, it's a miracle. Kill Jesus. So that's not the deal. Is he a liar? Okay, that's a choice. Well, maybe if he's not a liar, didn't really mean to do that quite yet. Uh, well, maybe if he is not a liar, he's a lunatic. He's just crazy. As one book said, he's on the level of somebody you would say is like a poached egg. You know, he's, he just doesn't know anything that's going on. He's a lunatic. Well, how does a lunatic teach what he taught? How does a crazy person have the ability to even confound these educated people? 
How does a lunatic write or at least speak the greatest words ever spoken? How is that possible? I have to come to that answer. And there's only one other choice. He's the Lord. Now somebody says, well, no, 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 no. There's another choice. He's a good guy. He was a good man. Islam says he was a prophet. The Mormon church says he was a prophet. And then there was another prophet who came. He's just a prophet. He's a good man. That choice is not open to you. Now, I've had this discussion many times with people, and I'm telling you, it, they, they cannot get over this fact. They have to deal with it. You don't let them ever get away with saying, Jesus was just a good man. So, what you're saying is, a good man came to the earth, or a good man rose up and was teaching wonderful things, and telling everybody around, like he's telling them in this text, that if you don't hear me and listen to me and do what I'm telling you, you are going to fry in hell forever. You are going to be judged forever in hell. You are going to be raised to a resurrection of judgment, not a resurrection of life. And Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in all of the Bible. And what you're saying is this good man told everybody and fooled everybody so that billions of people since that time have believed that he was the Son of God and have decided to live their life for him when actually he was just a good man. He's not God. He's not a Savior. And on top of that, his mother Mary was the worst woman that ever walked the face of the earth because she knew full well she was not a virgin. She knew full well that she cheated with some guy named Panthera, as the Jews said, a Jewish soldier, and that that's how that happened. And she stood at the foot of the cross and watched her own son die, knowing full well he was nothing but human, and never told him, and never objected, and let him die that way. You have the worst woman that ever lived who watched the worst man who ever lived die on a cross. No. Being just a good guy is not open to you. A good man does not make these kinds of claims. That's what John's doing. John is urging you have to come to a decision here. You have three choices and only three choices. He's either the Lord, he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. There is no other choice. Which is it? That's what you have to come to. And if you cannot say, I've said this to people many times. If you cannot say he's a liar, and if you cannot say he's a crazy person, you have only one other choice. And that one other choice is going to insist on you responding to this one who is God. So it's a strong, strong argument that Jesus makes in this particular text. Well, we're going to sing a song right now, and if there's any way that we can help you, obviously we're glad to do so, and we urge you to do anything that's necessary, and we can help to do that in order to make sure you are 
uh, growing and doing what is necessary to be in God's kingdom. And we invite you to do that while together we stand and while we sing.